Well, good morning. And uh, you may want to turn to Romans chapter 16. While you're finding that, let me take care of a little housekeeping. Today is the last day for turning in your ballots for deacon nominations. We've been in this process whereby we um, uh, select our deacons for the next uh, uh, cycle. And so if you have not yet turned in your nomination form, please do so. There are extras out at the uh, Welcome Center. Uh, Take care of that today if you would, please. Thank you. You're welcome. Thank you. All right. This morning, we finish the book of Romans. This will be the, the last... Uh, um, no, I'm, I'm there. <laughs> I am there 100%, but always uh, oh, about 22 months ago and about 85 sermons. I haven't counted them all up, but uh, uh, that's how long ago we, we started looking at the book of Romans, working through that. Uh, starting out in Romans 12, wanting to know uh, what it meant to be a Romans 12 Christian, someone for whom the gospel was, was shaping their life and, and uh, uh, sort of uh, guiding us into how we behave and, and uh, what we do, how we treat one another, those kinds of things. But we learned very quickly that in Romans 12, 1, uh, you can't get there unless you've been through Romans 1 through 11. So that's why we went back, started at Romans 1, 1, worked our way through. We spent a lot of time uh, on the Romans 12 um, chapter and the subsequent chapters having to do with being a Romans 12 Christian. And now we come to the end. We've, we've been looking at the, um, uh, the hi, how are you, the so-and-so sends greetings, say hey back to you. Uh, we've been looking at, at that part of chapter 16, and this morning we finish off this chapter. Now, there's actually three sections that we're going to be Reading in a moment. I don't plan to be covering those in our time, um, in sermon time together. The first section deals with uh, Paul talking about, uh, I want to warn you against people who come in and divide you up and, and uh, say things that would cause you to get off track in the gospel. Uh, Paul did not know the church at Rome. He, he wasn't aware of any particular problems there. It wasn't as if um, he knew them the way he, he knew, say, the church at Corinth. If you read First and Second Corinthians, you see that there Paul almost has a shopping list of problems. He says, now for this problem, do this, and this problem, that, and this problem, this. And he just goes through a shopping list of one problem after another after another. He doesn't know Rome, and he doesn't have a shopping list of problems to deal with. But that sort of gives us an insight because Paul was probably in Corinth when he wrote to the Romans. And so as he's writing the letter to the Romans, the the issues of contention and division in the church and problems in the church are still very much fresh in his mind. It's very much in front of his his thinking. And so uh, as he's writing, I think what he does is he says, uh, uh, well, look, you've got such a great thing going there in Rome. Don't let anybody wreck it. Don't let anybody take that away from you. So that's, that's sort of why we have that warning section. That's followed then by a section where different people send uh, greetings and say hello. Now, we've already had a lot of that, but that was more of a general sense. I think the people that he's going to mention is going to be, uh, what, Timothy, Lucius, Jason, Sisypater, and Tertius. Uh, I think these are the guys who are actually in the room with Paul as he was 
uh, dictating the letter. Uh, these are the guys that are listening in, and Paul says, does that sound right to you? And, you know, can I phrase that better? You know, those kinds of things. Uh, we don't know exactly how the inspiration of the Holy Spirit works, but I wouldn't be surprised if these guys were not in the room with Paul, and so he says, they say hi back to you. Um, he's just mentioning them. Tertius, when we get there, he's going to say, I, I wrote this letter. You know, it's not like Tertius wrote the letter and then Paul said, well, that's pretty good, Tertius. Uh, um, I guess I'll sign off on that. No, he was what's called an amanuensis or secretary. Uh, he took the dictation. He wrote down what Paul told him to write. And so um, Tertius is the one who actually put quill to, to papyri and, uh, and, and wrote the things down. So that's what we'll get at when we, when we get there. Then comes at the conclusion, starting in verse 25, is a doxology. The word doxology, as you know, comes from two Greek words. And the reason you know that is because everything comes from two Greek words. But um, it comes from the word doxa, which is the word for glory, logos, word. And so it's the word of glory. And so a doxology are words that you speak uh, in order to give glory and praise to God. A little bit later on in our service, we'll be singing what we call the doxology. Um, it's just actually one of many, but um, it is a, a time of, of giving praise and honor to God, and that's what a doxology is. Paul ends the book of Romans with a doxology. This is unusual. Paul does not usually end a letter with a doxology. Normally, he just says something like, uh, the grace of our Lord, uh, God our Father and the Lord Jesus be with you, and that usually is what ends the letter. But here in Rome, he ends with a doxology of praise to God. And that's what I want for us to be looking at a, a little bit later on in our time together. So I um, hope that gives you an outline. Uh, we're going to wind up with the doxology, and we will have completed our journey through the book of Romans. So let's look at uh, chapter 16, start at verse 17. Paul writes this. I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught. Avoid them. For such persons do not serve our Lord Christ, but their own appetites. And by smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the hearts of the naive. For your obedience is known to all, so that I rejoice over you. But I want you to be wise as to what is good and innocent as to what is evil. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Timothy, my fellow worker, greets you. So do Lucius and Jason and Sosipater, my kinsmen. I, Tertius, who wrote this letter, greet you in the Lord. Gaius, who is host to me and to the whole church, greets you. Erastus, the city treasurer, and our brother Quartus greet you. Now to him who is able to strengthen you, according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages, but has now been disclosed and through the prophetic writings has been made known to all the nations according to the command of the eternal God to bring about the obedience of faith. To the only wise God be glory forevermore through Jesus Christ. Amen. Let's bow together in prayer. Indeed, Father, you are worthy of all honor and glory and praise. You are worthy of our adoration. You are worthy of our obedience and our sacrifice. Father, your love is so immense and great for us. We praise you for that love given to us freely and openly. 
Father, your wisdom far surpasses anything we could imagine, and we praise you that you use and give us that wisdom that we might be guided and led. Father, your power is infinite, and we thank and praise you that that power is put into our lives through the gift of the Holy Spirit. Father, you are wonderfully majestic, and we pause just to acknowledge your greatness and your goodness, your holiness and your righteousness. And Father, indeed, to say that you are worthy of all praise. Father, we glorify your name and pray that you would be glorified in our lives. And we ask it in Jesus' name. So we come to the end of the book of Romans. And as I mentioned a little bit earlier, Paul ends it with a doxology. It's not his usual practice. Normally, it's just the grace of God be with you, that kind of thing. And I think what moved Paul to end this letter with a doxology is that the letter to the Romans is so rich in teasing out and unfolding the depth of God's grace and how he has brought salvation to us, how he has been at work in the world and in history to bring a people unto himself. Uh, the, the book of Romans is so rich in giving us a, a, a connection with the majesty and the depth of God's grace that when he got to the end of it all, he said, you know, I don't want you to lose the point. I don't want you to just read this letter and feel like, wow, I understand something because he wasn't after a change of the intellect. So I don't want you to come to the end of this and, and feel like, wow, I feel inspired and motivated because his purpose wasn't just that you feel inspired and motivated. As Paul wrote under the guidance of the Holy Spirit, his motivation was this, that you and I would give glory and honor to God the Father through Jesus' Son by the power of the Holy Spirit. And so he ends with this doxology, almost as, as if to say, now that you've read what, what I've had to say, now that you see what the gospel is about, now that you know what a Romans 12 Christian is, here's the purpose of it all, to give praise and honor and glory constantly to God. See, that's why we were created. You remember Paul said that? He said, I, I beg you by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, your reasonable service of worship. Your life is to be constant worship and praise to God. Your life is to be a doxology to God in everything you say and do. This is why you're created. This is why you're here. This is God's purpose for your life. And so as we come to this end of the letter, we are called to give praise to God, to give doxology to God. Now, one of the things that happens when you give praise to God is it transforms everything in your life. It transforms your perspective. It transforms what your goals are. It transforms how you evaluate things around you. When you can pause and give praise to God, it changes everything around you, everything in your thinking. When you can pause and give God the glory, it'll lift you up out of the depths It'll redefine what really the heights are that's not what you think when you give glory to God. I think I want to illustrate that by a passage in the Gospel of John. If you will, turn very quickly with me. When we look at John chapter 12. We pick up reading in verse 27. This, this is the 
account of Jesus, he's already arrived in Jerusalem for the last week of his earthly ministry. Events are now starting to snowball. They're starting to roll very, very quickly towards the cross. The next big thing to happen in the biography of Jesus is his crucifixion. And so in John chapter 12, verse 27, Jesus says, Now is my soul troubled. I tried to think, what did it take to trouble the soul of Jesus? The Pharisees didn't trouble his soul. Not having a place to lay his head never troubled his soul. Not having anything to eat didn't trouble his soul. The confusion of his disciples and their waywardness, that didn't trouble his soul. What troubled his soul was the cross. Now, we know what it is to have a troubled soul, but we know nothing about how deep the troubling is when you're facing a cross where you were bare sin for a lost humanity that doesn't belong to you. In just a few short days, Jesus will be placed upon a cross, and that sin which is abhorrent to him, that sin which is so contrary to everything about him, contrary to his nature, our sin will be placed upon him. And I don't know that it was so much the physical pain that troubled his soul as it was that for the first time, his being, his body would be touched by sin. Sin so heinous and so deep and so gross that at one point he would cry out, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus said, my soul is troubled. And he said it from a place deeper and darker than you and I could ever imagine. Jesus said, now is my soul troubled and what shall I say? What should I pray for? Should I pray this? Father, save me from this hour. That's the prayer you and I pray. When we're down, when we're, when we're hurting, when we're broken, when things are going against us, when we're being abused, when we're being persecuted, when, when things are just wrong in our lives, we pray, God, save me. God, get me out of this. It would have been very natural for Jesus to have said, Father, save me from all this. This is John's version of the prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane. Father, if it's at all possible, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. Shall I pray this, that Father, save me? Jesus said, no, that's not my prayer. But for this purpose, I have come to this hour. said, so this is why I came. This is why I left the glory of heaven. This is why I took on humanity. This is why I became a servant. This is why I have been obedient to the Father. This is why I have taught and worked. This is why I have put the kingdom of God on display in my ministry. This is the reason I came. For this hour, it is for this cross that looms before me. Oh, you see, without the cross, there is no gospel. You take the cross out of the life of Jesus and you have very wise teaching and you have very nice sayings. You have cute stories of children and you have inspiring meditations on, on human nature and those kinds of things. But if you don't have the cross, you don't have salvation. 
And Jesus came, seek to save the lost. He said, for this very purpose, for this cross, that's why I came. I came for the cross. He said, so shall I pray in the depths of this, of this, of this darkness in this point of my life? Shall I just pray, God, save me, or shall I pray elsewise? Because this is why I came. It's on verse 28. Here's the prayer of Jesus. At the lowest point any human being has ever reached, Father, glorify your name. Father, whatever's coming, whatever's going to happen, you get glory out of it. Father, if they have to nail me to a cross, you get the glory, Father. If they have to ridicule me and mock me, if they have to despise me, you get the glory, Father. If my life has to be broken so that I descend into the depths of death, Father, you receive the glory through it all. You see, giving doxology to God changes the whole situation. Oh, if you could only learn to pray in the midst of heartache and hardship, in the midst of sorrow, if you could learn to pray in the midst of of setback, if you could learn to pray when all of life seems to be falling down around you, if you could learn to pray when things are going well and you're successful, if you could learn to pray when everything seems up, if you could learn to pray in every situation of life, Father, glorify your name, your life will be transformed. I want to finish that verse, and then we'll go back to Romans. But the voice came from heaven. I have glorified it. I have glorified it. And I will glorify it, my name, again. The Father said, I have glorified my name, but there's going to be more glory. You may not see it this side of heaven. You may not understand until you stand with other believers around the throne of God's grace to sing praises to God for all eternity. And one of the things I think that God will do is he'll open our eyes and we'll look back and we'll see times in our lives when we could not see the glory of the Father and then we'll say, aha, which is Hebrew for glory to God. And we will just say, aha, that's what you were doing. That's what you were up to. And suddenly we'll see how that small tile of a mosaic was put into place and our tile with others and others and others and they couldn't see it either, but suddenly we see the great picture of God's glory. I have glorified my name and I will glorify my name again. You see, when you praise God, when you give a doxology to God, it transforms your life. It transforms everything. And so Paul says, I want you, at, you know, we're back to Romans 16. I want you, when, you're, when you've got this, this, this thing in your head now, you understand that what God was doing in the gospel, you, you understand what, what grace means now for those who are sinners and who are lost and how God, it, now that you understand that, let's just pause and worship. You know, Paul does that every now and then. He doesn't end his letters with doxologies, but some eight times he just bursts out worshiping God. You know, it's almost like he was dictating to the guys. He said, well, guys, here's the, the letter to the Romans. I want to say this, this, and this, and this, and this. And then he gets to the end of it, and he says, guys, we've got to give God glory for all this. Let's have a worship service right here and now. And so now to the one who's able to strengthen you, be glory forevermore.
And so he ends with this doxology. I want for us to look at that. Paul praises God for the gospel. He says, now to him who is able to strengthen you, that word strengthen doesn't mean just work out so your muscles get stronger. It's a, it's a word you would use if, if you're going to establish somebody, if you were going to set their feet so that they could not be moved, if you were going to strengthen a building so it could withstand the hurricane. That's the word that's used here. Now, one who is able to establish you, to strengthen you, according to my gospel. Paul's not being possessive here. It's the gospel of Jesus Christ. He's saying, the gospel that I preach, this gospel so dear to me, according to the gospel, the one able to strengthen than you and the preaching of Christ according to the revelation. Paul said, I praise God for the gospel. I praise God for the power of the gospel to strengthen you. Peter found out the power of the gospel to strengthen him. He went through his, his, his apprenticeship with Jesus and for years he was with Jesus and he kept messing things up. He kept stumbling. He kept failing. He kept uh, falling. He kept doing the wrong thing and saying the wrong thing. By the time you got through with it, Peter, is just, you're just scratching your head and saying, I, this kid's hopeless. But because of the gospel of Jesus Christ and the power of the resurrection, a few weeks after the resurrection, Peter stands in the city that crucified Jesus and proclaims, God sent him, you killed him, God raised him, now repent. He was made bold and strong. He was established by the power of the gospel. The gospel has power to establish us so that we will not be moved. Paul says, I praise God for that kind of power. I give glory to the one who is able to establish me and to strengthen me according to the gospel. He praised God for the gospel message. He said, and according to the preaching of Jesus, that is the proclamation that Jesus Christ is Savior and Lord. When Paul got to Corinth from where uh, he, he was writing the, 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 the letter to the Romans, when Paul got to Corinth, he, he, he said this. He said, I purposed to know nothing among you save Jesus Christ and him crucified. He said, when I got to, the, to those folks in Corinth, I decided the only message that was worth preaching was a message of the cross of Jesus Christ. Now, let me tell you, the world will tell you this cross message is foolish. It doesn't make any sense. Why could one man die for the sins of all? The world will tell you that this cross is weakness. It doesn't make any sense. How could the Son of God be crucified by those weaker than he? Why didn't he stop it? This cross is foolishness and it is weakness. But for us who've been touched by the power of the gospel, this cross is the very power and wisdom of God. Without the cross, there is no gospel. All you have are your motivational talks, your inspirational moments, the kinds of feel-good uh, celebrations. But with the cross of Jesus Christ, you have life and life everlasting. Um, hold up the cross and preach the cross. Give God glory, honor, and praise for the message, for the cross of Jesus Christ. And Paul said, I give God glory for the mystery of the gospel. We read it this way. He says, according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages, now disclosed through the prophetic writings has been made known. There is a mystery to the gospel. And I praise God for that mystery. There is a mystery that Jesus of Nazareth counted lowly, rejected and despised, is the Messiah. All the Old Testament prophets 
pointed to him. The Old Testament prophets said the suffering servant of God would come and he would be despised, he'd be rejected, and yet by his stripes we'll be healed. He'll bear our sorrows, he'll bear our griefs. The prophets pointed to it. The people did not embrace it. Jesus came as one suffering for them to die for them. But they were looking for a Messiah who would kick the Romans out. But Jesus came and it was a mystery. It was something they would not have known except that God, by his grace, took the cover off their eyes so that they could see what the prophets had been talking about and that this Jesus is Messiah and this Jesus is Lord. I praise God for that mystery. I praise God for the mystery that the Gentiles are included. Paul talks about that in the, in the letter to the Ephesians, but here he mentions that, that, that this gospel comes, how does he phrase it? To bring, uh, to made known to all nations. The word nations there is the same word used to translate Gentiles. That Gentiles are included. Maybe you're Jewish by background. Maybe you have Jewish DNA and blood, and so you would have been fine. But folks, I would have been lost if he didn't include the Gentiles. I would be lost if God did not break down the dividing wall between Jew and Gentile and made of us one people. I would be lost if God had not reached out and included me in a way that Israel could never have imagined. The prophets talked about this mystery, but they didn't understand it until the gospel opened our eyes that God's love and grace is for all the world. I praise God for the mystery that the Gentiles are included. But most of all, I praise God for the mystery that God included me. I don't understand it. For you, I understand it. You are wonderful people. You're marvelous people. And you got your problems, and I'll tell you about them someday, but, <laughs> but you got good hearts, and you got good attitudes, and you're lovely and beautiful people. But I know myself better than you do. And God knows me better than I do. And I don't understand how he could love me like that. I praise God for the mystery that he included me on the rolls of salvation. It doesn't make any sense. I can contribute nothing to his glory. I cannot give him anything that he does not possess. I cannot enrich heaven in any way, but he chose me to be with him. That's a mystery. I don't understand it, but I praise God for it. I praise God for the gospel because of the assurance that is ours in this gospel. Paul puts it this way. He says, uh, uh, made known to all the nations, and then according to the command of the eternal God... According to the command of the eternal God, for God before the foundation of the world decided and purposed that he would redeem unto himself a people through his son, Jesus Christ. It was God who decided to send Jesus to us. It is God who decided that grace would be the means of salvation. God who chose us. And because he chose us and it's the command, eternal command of God, then we have this eternal security in him. See, in John 3, 16, we read that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Whosoever, 
This morning, if you do not know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you can be that whosoever and believe in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, and you will be saved. You will have everlasting life and never perish. That is the command of God. But I had to choose Jesus. I had to choose this salvation. And when I chose him, then I realized I chose him because he chose me first. I love him because he loved me first. I want to be with him because he wanted me to be with him first. You see, it begins with God. It's the work of God. It is all the command and decree of God. And because God has commanded it and God decrees it, then it is secure and certain for all eternity. I praise God for the assurance that is ours in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And then finally, there's the fruit of the gospel. And I praise God for this. It says, to bring about, this very last line in verse 26, to bring about the obedience of faith. To bring about obedience. Do you know how miserable the Christian life would be if God said, all right, I saved you. Now you go out and try your best. I'll check in on you later. Do you know how miserable life would be if we tried to obey and try to attain and try to walk in the footsteps of Jesus and every step along the way we had to figure it out and we had to find the, the strength and the energy. But because of Jesus, we are given the gift of the Holy Spirit to bring about the obedience of faith so that it is the Holy Spirit of God that works in us. I tell you, one of the greatest moments of my life, so vivid, so vivid, I can tell you, it's my sophomore year in college when I realized I don't have to do anything to keep my salvation. God does it all through me and in me. Now, I can rebel and I can disappoint him and I can, I can grieve the Spirit, all those things. But what I know is that if I will just put my faith in God day by day, his Holy Spirit works in me and through me. And the obedience that, that might be in my life is a, is, is, is a result of God's working in me. And God doesn't leave us alone. I thank and praise God for the obedience of faith because he is the one who does that also in us by the power of the Holy Spirit. And so Paul says... Let's give glory to God. Let's give glory to the God who's able to strengthen us through this gospel that we've just been talking about. To verse 27, very quickly, it says, to the only wise God. How much time do you have? <laughs> says the only God, the only God, the only God. Why are we trying to substitute other gods? Why are we trying to add other gods? Why are we trying to put substitute gods? Why are we trying to put other lesser gods to sort of round things out? Why do we admit any other God into our lives? To the only wise God, to the only God, be glory. The glory is already his. He is altogether completely glorious. God is glorious because of who he is, holy and righteous. God is glorious because of what he does. He saves lost sinners. But we give glory to God simply to recognize it was his all along. 
And when we give glory to God through Jesus Christ, our lives are transformed and we're put on track to be a Romans 12 Christian, a living worship service to God. And so my prayer for you this coming week is that you would sing the doxology every hour on the hour, all week long. And I don't mean the way you sing it here. I, I, really, not the way you sing it here. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise him, all creatures here below. I hope the sermon's not that long. Praise Father, Son. But to sing the doxology every hour on the hour. Praise Father. Praise the Son. Praise the Holy Ghost. That'll change your life. Let's bow together in prayer. Father, I ask only that we would be found more obedient, more fit, more useful, more willing, more ready. Father, by the power of your Holy Spirit, that we would be found more in who you are. Father, make of our lives fit vessels of your praise, that your glory would be seen in us, and that in all that we say and do, we would bring honor and glory to your name. I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.